1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Policy Center Legislative Briefing. I'm Richard Nelson, Executive Director of Commonwealth Policy Center, here with State Senator Mike Wilson, Majority Whip of the Kentucky State Senate. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Richard. It's good to be with you. Hey, it's really good to have you here. We're in Frankfurt, and uh, you've been in session the last couple of days. Right. Uh, you've dealt with a lot of hot issues, uh, contentious issues. Yes. Yeah, and certainly. I'd like us to dig in for the benefit of the of the Kentucky citizens out there to unpack some of the more challenging issues. And I think the the first uh, issue that's receiving a lot of media attention is the legislature's restrictions of Governor Andy Beshear's executive authority. Uh, Senate Bill 1 addresses that. Just tell us briefly some of the high points in that bill.
0: Well, basically what you've had is the governor for the last 333 days has put us under a state of emergency with uh, COVID. And under that, he's issued all kinds of executive orders or emergency orders that have actually shut down schools, shut down restaurants, businesses, you know, all of these things that he's done to our economy. And so uh, our response to that is say, you know, we've reached out to the governor. He wouldn't talk to us for 10 months. And when he finally did was to tell us what he was going to do, not to get any input from those that are closest to the people. So, so basically, me, Yeah, go ahead. No. Basically, uh, Senate Bill 1 restricts the governor to the point that he says uh, an emergency can only last 30 days. Now he can renew it, but he has to be able to call the legislature in to do that. It's not many times in our past history it's happened. But in a situation like that, we would be amenable to be coming in and, and extending the emergency it just balances the power is what it does between the executive branch and the legislative
1: branch. So so this bill was essentially born from the need for the governor to work with legislators across the state who are really the eyes and ears of the state, of their districts. Really, you've got your ear close to what the people are saying. Right. And uh, this rectifies that gap between the governor, if you will, and the districts and the different regions of the state.
0: Right. It, it gives uh, more uh, equal power. And if you will, like any business that I've ever you know been a part of where I've headed up the business, I've always relied on my department heads to come together, put our heads together and make really good decisions. And uh, he hasn't done that with calling to the Senate or the House and the leadership there to talk to them who have experience and uh, make those decisions. It's been kind of a one man show
1: in all of that. Mike, you and I know that a number of businesses have been impacted in Kentucky. Uh, You're from the Bowling Green area, a lot of businesses there. Uh, This is something where you've seen firsthand how it's impacted the business owners and the people who work at these various businesses. Give us a snapshot of what what this 333 days of unchecked executive authority have looked like in the Bowling Green area.
0: Well, I can tell you we have a lot of restaurants because we, we draw from 10 counties that people come in to shop and eat in Bowling Green because we're the third largest city. And shutting down our restaurants has been uh, nothing short of a travesty. You have restaurants that are still required to pay the taxes that they're currently paying every year, uh, and yet they have no income. And all of the employees have laid off, and and they were drawing unemployment, but yet there's a huge problem with that. So there's no income for these folks that are laid off from all of the businesses and restaurants. So they have no ability to have money to spend to infuse into our local
1: economy. And it's really been devastating to our area. Have many of the restaurants closed? I Actually, I spend quite a bit of time in Bowling Green, a lot of good restaurants there. Yes. Uh, have many of them closed?
0: You know, as far as uh, not opening back up, I know there are some that have um, not opened back up. But most of them are at 50 percent capacity right now. And people are so tired. They want to get the mask off my face, get my kids back in school. And, you know, that's, that's a key thing that they want right now, and get the restaurants open. Yeah. And they are packing out the restaurants even at 50% capacity. I, I
1: wish the best for you and your community as we move towards recovery. I know it's yeah. been hard on the business owners, hard on the citizens in, the, in these districts. And uh, I do hope that uh, Bowling Green gets back on its feet. I want to go back to one of the provisions in the bill, something that was uh, charged against mm-hmm. the bill Uh, recently, and that is that the Senate Bill 1 gives the governor powers of eminent domain in an emergency. Can you speak to that? I think you've heard this. Yes,
0: I've already heard this, and I can tell you that that was not something new that was in Senate Bill 1. It already exists under emergency powers. So when you're doing a bill, you're going to list the section, and that was part of the section that was listed, though it was not new language. It's already there. And it's, you know, for those things, it's like if there was a flood or disaster, and in order to build like an earthen dam or something like that, needed to procure some property, all of the laws of eminent domain still apply to that, you know, as far as being, you know, um, given the, I guess, right amount of money for
1: it and stuff like that. So this was existing law. This provision that was spelled out in Senate Bill 1 was already on the books. The, on the, the governor books. had eminent domain authority in a time of a an emergency, natural right. disaster, right. as you mentioned. Uh, but this was not something the legislature created. No. Mm-hmm. You did amend it to specify, if I recall correctly, that uh, the state has to reimburse accordingly if they... See somebody's yes, property. Yes, that was or, added to it. That's correct. So you fixed. So you yeah, fixed we just something added that, was wrong. that,
0: which really already exists. If, you know, as far as I'm, I understand it, but we just put it in there to make sure that people understood that that still applied.
1: There is a constitutional provision worth mentioning as well in the U.S. Constitution that says private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. Exactly. So, yes. you're you're just putting codifying that into state yes. law, yes, just to make sure that the government pays somebody when right. they take exactly. their property or, or goods. Just so.
0: compensation, you're yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, uh, so I want to go to why the legislature's acting now. Uh, the governor had free reign last year, uh, but why are you acting on this now? You've been in session for a couple of course, a few, few days in January. Now, here right. we're on the beginning of February. Uh, why not wait until this pandemic is over?
0: Well, the thing about it is, like I said, we've been in this emergency for 333 days. And that's something the governor has not considered us on. And we do not have the ability to call ourselves back into session. And so for us, we had to wait till January till we got back into session before we could even act on anything
1: like this. So you didn't have it within your power as the legislative no. body, as the lawmakers of Kentucky, you could not do anything. Your, your hands were tied, is exactly. that Exactly. Okay.
0: Only he could call us
1: into session under extraordinary session. Uh, Senator Wilson, is there a, a, an effort to allow the legislature to call itself into session? Yes, there is a bill um, from the Speaker in the House
0: that will allow us to call ourselves into session in the case of emergency.
1: Okay, so that's the House side, you're in the Senate. What's your guess uh, if the House passes it? Do you think something like that would be received favorably on the Senate side? Oh,
0: absolutely. I can tell you that we have members in the Senate that are working with House members and the Speaker right now to make sure that that bill is what it should be so it can pass uh, both chambers. And and this is a constitutional amendment? Yes, it is. So tell us what that means. Constitutional amendment, you you can only have, I think, uh, we can pass two and the House can pass two. It's kind of how it works. And every time there's an election, which is every two years, it can go on the ballot for voters to vote on it. So there's no uh, ballot that it will be on in 21, Mm -hmm. but in 22 in November, it'll be on the ballot.
1: Okay, so if this constitutional provision was passed this year, it would go on to next year's ballot in yes, November of correct. 2022. That's correct. Okay. Um, so there was a lawsuit uh, immediately after you passed Senate Bill 1. Uh, the governor's office filed a lawsuit against this, saying that the legislature didn't have authority. No, uh,
0: he actually vetoed it first, oh, okay. and then we all came you. back and override the vetoes, okay. overrode them. And then uh, he uh, filed lawsuit immediately uh, following the fact that we had, you know, he filed against uh, Senate Bill One, Senate Bill Two, House Bill One, and I believe it was House Bill Three mm-hmm. or House Bill Two. Okay, okay.
1: Thanks for clarifying that. So the Judge Philip Shepard here in Franklin yeah. County did take action on that.
0: Yeah, the, uh, there was a a uh, order that just came down and actually. Uh, the governor filed uh, for injunctive relief, I believe, on this, to, to, uh, and Shepard only came out with uh, the one on House Bill 1.
1: Okay, very good. Senator Wilson, I'd like to move on to another issue. Uh, we're running out of time here, but uh, HHR. Uh, top issue right now in the legislature, HHR stands for historical horse racing right uh, and this is something that the horse tracks have implemented going back ten years ago, not far from your district. Kentucky right. Downs was right. the Very first close. track to mm-hmm. set up essentially as I under as see it it 's a casino gambling venue slot machines they, they're video slot machines. you put your money in, you press the button if you get three or four of a kind, then you win the jackpot. Now they say that this is more related to horse racing than it is to casino gambling because people are betting on a historical horse race, a previously run horse race. And in some of the original machines, they actually had a little video of the last two seconds of a horse race. Right. And they said this is not video gambling; it's HHR. What? What are you? Have you seen these things? What, what are your thoughts on that? Is well, this is this is this more related to horse racing? Than it is to
0: like video poker, video blackjack. Um, I I don't think so. I think they're akin to slot machines personally. And, and I haven't seen one. Uh, you know, I haven't actually been into one of the horse tracks parlors, I guess you would call it. Yeah. Uh, I have been to the horse races and I think I walked through, but I wasn't really paying attention uh, to a horse race um, or to those as I went to the horse race. But... Um, Yes, they are akin to to slot machines, and their argument was that it's not, um, you know, slot machines. It's, you know, the historical horse racing is paramutual betting. And, of course, the Supreme Court came out with a unanimous decision, said that, no, it's not paramutual betting. And so they left it up to the legislature to define what uh, paramutual betting is, which is what the bill is in the Senate. So this
1: bill that is before you right now would redefine paramutual. It it would expand the definition to include essentially gambling on video slot machines. Yes, it would include the uh, HHR machines. One of the big arguments the horse industry has is that uh, we need to shore up the purses for the horse races here in Kentucky. We need to have breeding incentives for the horse farms here. And Kentucky cannot compete with other states that have his HHR machines, video slot yeah. machines. How, how do you respond to that? This is our signature industry. Right? Well,
0: I, I don't know that if it's necessarily a signature industry, but it is a industry that uh, when people, you know, talk about or, or hear you're from Kentucky, they know about the Kentucky Derby, they know about bourbon, uh, those two things for sure. So it's uh, I, you know, from that standpoint, I, I don't think that uh, it's going to collapse as it's, it's, people say it will. It Has it helped the equine industry? Yes. It has made greater purses. It has brought more brood mares and, and breeding and stuff into our state uh, in regards to that. But I think the, the term, uh, how much it was last year, was $21 million. Uh, the money okay. they take yeah. in from that they could afford to do a whole lot more than that
1: so well, one last question and we're just about out of time but if the um horse racing commission the Kentucky H- horse racing commission legitimized this 10 years ago they said this is really a horse racing type activity we're going to legalize it if this was really truly illegal the whole time why didn't anybody take action to stop them well they did it okay. was in the courts. It okay. was tied up in the courts. So there was a lawsuit? Ten years. Okay. Yes. Okay.
0: So that was uh, that's what happened, and the lawsuit came down. And, um, you know, with the order from the Supreme Court, uh, Stan Cave was the representing attorney for the Family Foundation, mm-hmm. uh, which I know you're well acquainted with. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, now they're coming to us, as one of my uh, colleagues said, you know, looking for us to bail them out.
1: Yeah. Very good. Senator Mike Wilson, we are out of time. Thank you so much. It's good to have you with us. Thank you. Hi, Richard Nelson here with the Commonwealth Policy Center. Big gambling is at it again. They're trying to get the Kentucky legislature to cover a bad bet that they made 10 years ago. That's when the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission redefined the word parimutuel, and that was in order for them to bring in video slot machines, otherwise known as the crack cocaine of gambling. All this while there was a lawsuit filed. Now, of all the people who should understand that you shouldn't put the cart before the horse, it's Kentucky's horse racing industry. But they did it anyway. Now they're asking your legislators to bail them out of their illegal and unwise decisions. The law applies to everyone, and no one business interest is above the law. If you believe that, call the legislative message line right now and ask your legislator to oppose any gambling expansion bill. The number is 800-372-7181. Again, the number is 800-372-7181. Call and tell them to stop gambling expansion right now. Welcome back to the Commonwealth Policy Center Legislative Briefing. And with me in this segment is uh, State Senator Whitney Westerfield from Hopkinsville. Senator Westerfield, welcome to the program. Good to see you, Richard. Hey, you have been uh, immersed in the legislative session, I guess maybe the second half of the session. You were in for about a week or so in January. Mm Mm-hmm. Here we are in the first week of February, and uh, you've had a lot of uh, uh, challenging issues. I'll put it that way. Um, Important issues, uh, important decisions that the legislature is making. And uh, one of those is a life issue. You have been known as an advocate for the sanctity of human life in the state legislature, And there was a bill that you introduced last year that uh, was vetoed by Governor Bashir. It was Mm -hmm. uh, the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. And
2: essentially, the Born Alive bill would protect those babies who survive a botched abortion. Survive? It would protect uh, any baby that's born alive, whether it's from a failed abortion attempt, a premature birth, or anything. Uh, it, It doesn't make a distinction there. If they're born alive, it requires reasonable and appropriate medical care.
1: As I understand it, this came about after some Troubling comments were made by uh, Governor Ralph Northam Absolute in Virginia. Absolutely grotesque
2: comments, in my opinion. That
1: essentially, he was saying that if there's a baby that survives a botched abortion, it's really up to the mother would, and the doctor. We would doctor. set the,
2: the child aside and make it comfortable, and a conversation would be had about what to do. Just to, yeah. just some of the most abhorrent things I've ever seen. When I learned that Kentucky didn't have a, a law that required that such a child be given medical care, I filed it actually two years ago in 2019. It came late in a session shortly after those comments. Uh, and then, of course, it just didn't make it all the way through in 19. Last year, as you've said, Governor Beshear vetoed it. And this year, uh, he didn't veto it, but he didn't have the, the nerve to sign it in a law. So it's law anyway, despite his lack of signature.
1: Well, I, so I want to, since he brought that up, was this because of the pressure he faced uh, he was very adamant last year. He said this bill isn't yeah, necessary. Yeah, his, his
2: veto um, message said last year that we already have a law in the books that does this. We don't. That we don't need to do something that's unconstitutional. It has never been challenged successfully in the country that I'm aware of or that anybody else is. And that we don't need to be doing something so divisive as protecting unborn and now newly born life during a pandemic. Um, I don't know what made him change his tune, but he, he couldn't bring himself to sign it into law. And that's fine. We were ready to override the veto had he issued one. I'll take it any way I can get it.
1: Very good. I want to read a statement that the Kentucky ACLU has on their website regarding Senate Bill 9, the Born Alive Bill. They say this, and I quote, The so-called protection of infants born alive during an abortion is not based in the real-life practice of medicine. It serves only to shame and ostracize patients and health care providers. SB 9 is one part of Kentucky General Assembly's years-long campaign to push abortion care out of reach, bit by bit. End quote. That was I pulled that off wrong. their website earlier today. So, so is they say this is uh, not based on the real life yeah, practice of this. They're wrong. So, and so speak to that.
2: Well, we've actually had abortion survivors testify before the legislative committees in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. My friend Senator Matt Castlin had the heartbeat bill. A couple of sessions ago, uh, or a session or two ago, and we had abortion survivors come in and testify. So we know that there are people who survive abortions. Uh, likewise, the bill, and, and if you'll look at the very end, I added some language to this year's version of it from last year's. It can also be referred to as the Avison Act. A little girl named Ava—that's what her family calls her—and Ava was born at 22 weeks and four days at a hospital in Central Kentucky. Not a failed abortion attempt, just a premature birth, mm-hmm. and that hospital decided we're not going to provide care for that little girl. Mm-hmm. And the family begged for care, and they didn't get it. And there are hospitals that have different rules and standards. I've been texted by, by uh, my friends and colleagues in Jefferson County where they've got a slew of hospitals, and each one does things a little bit differently. And they might be willing to give care if it's born earlier or later. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted to make sure that if a child's born alive whenever it is, that it's given appropriate, not extreme measures, but appropriate and responsible and reasonable medical care. And it it allows the doctor to make that decision. We can't legislate what that is for every situation. Uh, But I think that the argument that these situations don't exist is is demonstrably proved false. Groups like the ACLU
1: and uh, reproductive freedom groups, as as they're called, say that this restricts women's reproductive rights.
2: Their own doctors in both the House and the Senate, uh, two different physicians, testify that it wouldn't change their practice. Uh, Again, not even consistent with their own marketing spin on their website. Okay.
1: So in 2003, at the federal level, there was a federal Born Alive Infant yeah. Protection Act. Is this not redundant? Not, a a, not at all.
2: I, I invite folks to read. It's a 2002 federal law, uh, and I'm glad it's there, but it's, it's sort of useless. It's, it's good for show. It's less than one page long. It provides a couple of definitions, and that's it. Mm-hmm. There's no requirement for care. Mm-hmm. There's no penalty for healthcare providers who are given a duty and don't meet it. There, there's nothing. There's no there there. Uh, there's no substance to it. Uh, I'm glad that the federal government decided and the Congress decided to define it. But we need something with more teeth. And even if they passed it, you could make the argument that that only applies to federally funded or federally operated healthcare facilities mm-hmm. and not all the other ones. We needed this protection and we needed a protection that actually does some protecting. And that's why Senable 9 exists.
1: Senator Westfield, how do you respond when somebody says the right to life community only cares about unborn life or the newly born life, but after that, then they don't really care?
2: Then they aren't getting to know members of the, the pro-life community. Uh, the number of people who go out of their way to, I got an email this morning uh, from the Knights of Columbus, and there are thousands of members of the Knights of Columbus and church groups from the, the Kentucky Baptist Convention to the the Catholic churches in in Kentucky to uh, every faith community that provide to pred- pregnancy care centers all over the, the Commonwealth that care for women who are post-abortive, who care for women who are facing crisis pregnancies and, and then nurture them, provide resources for them after the child's born. Yeah. Uh, there are a ton of things that we've done. Just, we're recording this on Wednesday evening, uh, February the 3rd, on February the 4th, the Kentucky Senate Judiciary Committee will hear Dignity Bill, the Dignity 2.0 Bill. It's the second bill sponsored by Julie Rocky Adams that provides some protections for incarcerated pregnant women. And it's the second such bill that we've done like this. They're ignoring it or conveniently leaving out the work that we're doing to protect life at all stages. So this is just one part
1: of the pro-life movement. You're protecting the vulnerable who've survived an abortion. Uh, but the pro-life movement actually has been involved and engaged in other aspects of human life, other Absolutely. developmental stages. Absolutely. Of human life. Actually, so uh, you're very familiar, and I am too. I'm from the same area that you are. But Hopkinsville has a pregnancy care center, as you mentioned, which is a ministry to help women who are pregnant, women who've had their babies, and they provide encouragement and sustenance. Absolutely. Life material, skills,
2: material uh, uh, resources, and. and- Uh, and things that they need from diapers to car seats, showing them how to install a car seat, uh, all for completely free ultrasounds for those that are expecting. Uh, It's Alpha Pregnancy Care Center in Hopkinsville. There's Life Choice over in Russellville uh, that's a few years old. Uh, Another great facility that does the exact same work, uh, and they cater to these families uh, before pregnancy and after.
1: Yeah. And then, as you mentioned, uh, post-abortive women, which is really an unspoken... And, and the, the ACLU
2: yeah. never talks about that. Yeah. Yeah. They're all about getting the abortion, but these women that are that are going through it, I've talked to them myself. They they need uh that emotional help uh because that's a traumatic thing uh for women based on what they've shared with me. Uh but that's a traumatic experience and there are places like Alpha and like Life Choice that that exist to provide that care and love for women that have gone through that.
1: Very good. Thank you for filling us in on that. That's that's good for us to know. I want to pivot to another very challenging issue that just came up the other day. A yeah. uh, bill was proposed to change the definition of paramutual to uh, allow that to um, or to be interpreted as to extend to video
2: slot machines.
1: What they call historical horse racing. Historical
2: horse racing is is marketing spin. These are mm-hmm. slot machines in every way.
1: This is a personal issue for you because in your district in Christian County. Uh, One of these venues opened up, the Oak Grove Racing uh, venue and gaming venue opened up back, I believe it was September. Uh, Were you shocked to see this happen? It happened fairly quickly. Uh, The decision was made maybe a year, year and a half ago.
2: Yeah, I I think it came along pretty quickly. I'm I'm disappointed. I'm certainly grateful for jobs in my community and in my district. Uh, but I'm disappointed because these jobs and this economic impact comes at a great cost to Kentuckians and particularly our poor, because uh, those are the folks that patronize these machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, the upper class, upper middle class and wealthy don't go to play slot machines. Um, it, it's a it's a sucker's bet. And and the report from the historical horse racing machines, these slot machines and the racing commission show that they take in billions and they they pay out uh, a fraction of a fraction of that back to the people who bet. Uh, and even smaller, tiny fraction ends up going to the general fund. Uh, but I, I think it's cruel that we that we prey on our poorest people that way.
1: According to a recent uh, opinion piece in the Courier, Courier Journal, Louisville Courier Journal, by Dale Romans, he talked about how much uh, has been invested in the HHR uh, venues. About a hundred billion—I'm sorry, hundred million dollars annually—actually uh, comes in. From these investments in state and local taxes. I don't
2: I don't dispute any of those numbers. I don't I don't I haven't verified them, but I don't question them and I don't know this man or, or question his integrity. But, and
1: let me correct if I could correct. So this was actually the overall race tracks, it's more than just HHR. This is sure their, this is this is the economic impact that the tracks have but on But remember,
2: the impact that they've had over the last ten years because of these slot machines, the three thousand six hundred they've installed around the state, they did that knowing that the legal footing they were standing on was shaky. Let's talk about that. So why was it? They sought an opinion, a one-sided effort. They didn't bring anybody adversarial to their cause. All the tracks, the commission, everybody went in together uh, a decade ago and sought an opinion from the Franklin Circuit Court, according to a statute asking, you know, can we do what we're doing? Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court, in a decision issued back in 2014, actually spoke to that and said, look, before the Family Foundation entered this, you didn't have an action we could act on. You've got to have an adversarial proceeding there. which means you've got to have somebody opposed to this to be asking for the same sort of question. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Family Foundation joined that lawsuit, but that was the genesis of this. They knew from the outset that what they were doing was questionably illegal, and they did it anyway. They've made a bad bet by installing thousands of these machines, and I suspect Mm -hmm. all the folks that they've hired around the state, all the the contractors to build the facilities and employees staffing them as we're recording this tonight, I'm assuming when they hired him, they didn't say, "Now, by the way, we're we're bringing you on board," but we're still fighting this litigation, and now we're fighting it out in the legislature. We're not sure if it's going to be legal or not. I suspect they probably didn't. They should have, but they didn't.
1: So they gambled when That's they right. went ahead and invested in this new infrastructure when a lawsuit was filed against them, and yet they continued, and it's been going on for, for a decade, 10, yeah, for, for ten years. Now we have six tracks in Kentucky that have HHR
2: and venues. And a unanimous decision for the Supreme Court said they lost that bet, and they're coming to the General Assembly to, to bail them out. It was the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission that made
1: that decision and said, hey, this is more akin to horse racing than it is to, to casino-type gambling. They legitimized it, and yet there was that uh, lawsuit that challenged it. Uh, Senator Westerfield, I want to pivot to something else. What do you say to the person uh, who argues that you know, people are gambling in Kentucky anyway. They're going across state lines. They're going to Indiana. They're going to Ohio. Uh, they're going to other states, and they're gambling there. Why not just build yeah. the venues here, recapture some of that tax? Well, th-
2: two things. First, some of them are already doing that in other places, but when there's a facility in Oak Grove, there's more, and there is in South Christian. Now there are more people going to Oak Grove than would have gone somewhere else. So when you when you make it local and easier and more convenient, There's going to be more action there than would have gone in some other state. Um, Secondly, and this really gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to gaming, we're still preying on our poorest. Mm. And they're still putting money in. They're willfully doing it. It's their choice. But they're using what little disposable income they have uh, in hopes of striking it rich and not being saddled with poverty anymore. I think it's particularly cruel to prey on those Kentuckians and either to make ends meet or to make purses bigger. The industry is important and I don't want to I don't want to hurt the horse industry, but the free market says they need to find a way to do, to do this without hurting, in my opinion, without hurting Kentucky's poorest people. And in this case, I think the only way to do that is by constitutional amendment. And they haven't tried that yet. Very good. On that note, Senator Westerfield, we're going to have to close. We are out of time. It's been really good having you on. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me, Richard. And thank you for tuning in to the Commonwealth Policy Center Legislative Briefing. God bless.